Well, good morning, faith family. I want to say hello to those that are gathered in Lakeville. Uh, who's ready for a new series? Yeah, yeah. Well, you were going to get one either way. So uh, if you got a Bible, turn to the book of Hebrews towards the end of the Bible. You'll find uh, uh, this wonderful, wonderful book called the book of Hebrews that we are going to be in, uh, wow, for a little while. Thirteen chapters, going to take us a few months to work through this. But it is one of my favorite books in the New Testament. And we're calling this series No Going Back. No Going Back. And this is going to be a series that's going to uh, challenge you and convict you, and I, I trust encourage you in your faith uh, in Jesus Christ. And so uh, really excited about what we're going to, uh, uh, to talk about. And so this morning, I just want to give you an introduction uh, to the book, give you a taste of what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks. Now, by introduction, I don't mean short sermon. Okay, don't misunderstand that, okay? I just want to kind of give you a taste of this book uh, in the first few verses. Uh, we start to get a sense of what this is going to be about uh, just at the very, very beginning. And so uh, if you're able to stand in all of our locations, please do so. And let's look here at Hebrews chapter 1, and I'm just going to read the first four verses. Hebrews 1. One through four. The writer of Hebrews, I say it that way because we don't know who the author of this book is. I have some guesses. I'm sure some of you do as well, but they are just that, guesses. Uh, but still, this writer writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit these words. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What an introduction. Would you pray for me? Please pray for me and with me. Let's ask God to come talk to us. Father, we bow before you now, and that's what we ask for. Come speak to us. We're here in this moment because we want to hear from you. It's why we come to your word. These words breathe life into our soul. And so talk to us by your spirit, challenge us, convict us, um, encourage us in our faith to move forward in Christ. And we ask it in his name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Please be seated. You may remember the story from history class. The year was 1518. It was the year the famous conqueror by the name of Cortez set sail from Spain on a mission to Mexico to conquer land and also to do something that had not been done in 600 years, to take possession of Aztec gold. He set sail with about five to 600 men and 11 ships, and by February of 1519, they had reached the coast there in Mexico. Now, as you can imagine... When they first got there, they faced resistance, significant resistance immediately. There's a reason why for 600 years, no one had been able to conquer the peninsula. 
Uh, the Aztec warriors were very fierce. Uh, they weren't about to give up their land, and they certainly weren't about to give up their treasure. And so they fought hard. Cortez began to notice something in his men. He, he noticed their mind, uh, mindset beginning to, to shift. They were getting tired. They were getting weary. They were losing sight of the mission, and they were thinking about retreating. And when Cortez saw this, he did a very bold thing. Do you remember what he did? He destroyed their ships. Now, some say he burned them. I think the historical evidence supports that he sunk them. But either way, it doesn't really matter. He destroyed the ships. Why in the world would Cortez do something like that? Because he was sending a very clear message to his men. And the message was this. No matter what we face, no matter what happens, there is no going back. Whatever resistance we have to deal with, whatever opposition we may have to face, we will not retreat. And it worked. Cortez and his men would conquer the Aztecs and would take possession of their gold. Now, of course, I'm not advocating for, for the brutality of force that Cortez used, but I do think that illustration makes a very profound point because Cortez knew something that is kind of the tendency of human nature whenever there's hardship, whenever you're facing resistance. He knows that the tendency is to go back. It's almost always the easiest thing to do, and we've done it in lots of ways. Some of you, or maybe somebody that you know, was in a difficult relationship, one that was not healthy at all, and you finally got out of that relationship only to do what? To go back to it. Maybe you or somebody you know finally got free from alcohol. They finally became sober only to relapse back into it. Some of you were making progress in your diet and exercise. You were beating those cupcakes. You were doing good, man. You were losing weight only to revert back to those unhealthy patterns of eating. We've done this. How many of you, the alarm clock went off in the morning and you knew you ought to tackle the day? You know that there's things you need to do, but it was a lot easier to just go back to sleep. How many plans has the snooze bar destroyed? Yeah. You wake up, you know what? I'm not going to the gym this morning. Snooze. Eight minutes later, you hear the alarm. You know what? I took a long shower yesterday. Snooze. <laughs> Eight minutes later, you hear the alarm. You know what? I always wanted to go on welfare. Snooze. <laughs> The best is when you wake up, you look at the clock, and you see you still have time to sleep. It's like finding a thousand dollars. This is my lucky day slash night slash day. Love that. Every one of us knows what that's like, right? Not on Sunday morning, of course. We all know what it's like to go back. Everybody's done that in some way, in, in some type of situation. Why? It's easy. It's predictable. It's familiar. It's comfortable. 
Do you understand, faith family, that that's not just true in physical ways, that that exact same thing happens in our spiritual life? I mean, how many of us in our pursuit of Jesus have had those moments, had those seasons, had those days when we were tempted to retreat back to disobedience, relapse into sin, slip back into an old way of thinking rather than to press forward in our faith? Anybody? If you know what that's like, then you know exactly what the group of Christians that this letter is written to, you know exactly what they're going through. They are tempted to go back. And so the writer gives this sermon. That's what it is. It's a sermon in this form of of a letter. And I want to show you just very briefly how from the beginning of the letter to the end of the letter, this theme of move forward, don't go back is everywhere. In fact, when when you see the verse on the screen, the highlighted part in the orange, I want you to say that. Lakeville, everybody, I want you to say that out loud so that you can hear the theme in this book. Hebrews 2 verse 1, therefore... We must pay a much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. You see it? Hebrews 3.12, take care, brothers, lest there be any in any of you an evil heart, an unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. You say, that sounds like you can lose your salvation. We'll just wait till we get to chapter 3. We'll talk about it. Hebrews 4, verse 11, let us therefore... That rest, that is move forward, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Then you get to chapter 6, verse 1. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Then you get to chapter 10. Let us draw near. Let us move forward with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean with an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Chapter 10, verse 39, this really kind of gives the summary of it. We are not of what? Those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith. I'll give you one more all the way into chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Do you see? I'm giving you all those scriptures because I want all the way from chapter 2, even to chapter 12, and everything in the middle, the whole book is simply saying this, destroy the ships. You're not going back. You're not going to retreat in your faith. You're not going to give up and give in. You're going to press forward towards Christ. Because in light of him, in light of what he's done, in light of who he is, how could you do anything but move forward? Do you see, that's what this book is all about. Now, that would raise the question, why are they tempted to go back? There's got to be something taking place in the context as to why this would even be an issue. 
So what do, we, what, do we, what do we know about the group, the original group that would have read this sermon? Well, first of all, they're Jewish Christians. Uh, I take that from the fact that the title of the book is called To the Hebrews. I went to seminary for that, right? It's amazing. Now, there's probably some Gentile believers mixed in here, but for the most part, these are, are, are Jewish Christians. What I mean by that is they are people that used to be a part of Judaism, but they have converted to Christianity. Their background is that of Judaism. So we know, for instance, that they are believers, and, and, and I believe we'll see that clearly as we work through this book. They're called Holy Brothers. Their faith is referred to in present tense. They're called sons in relationship to their heavenly Father. And the emphasis of the book is maturity, not salvation. It's not put your faith in Jesus. It's press forward in your faith of Jesus. We also know this, not only do they have faith, but they've had faith at least for a while. They're, they're not new Christians, they're not baby Christians. In uh, Hebrews chapter 5, the writer is going to say, you know, by this time you ought to be teachers. By now you ought to be able to teach this. Instead, you need somebody to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. In other words, you have faith, and you've had faith long enough that you should have grown up by now. By the way, if you don't like to be challenged, you're not going to like this book, because the author holds no punches. He tells them like it is. Listen, you have faith, and you've had faith for a while, and you ought to be further along. Not in I'm going to beat you over the head kind of way, but I'm going to encourage you, go, 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 go. Press on. And that's this last piece that gives us insight as to why the theme. They have faith. They've had it for a while. But it's because of their faith that they have suffered. You've heard me say this before. Uh, being a Christian under Roman authority was not an easy thing. It was hard to find a job, hard to keep a job, hard to find a friend. If something happened like a natural disaster, if something happened in society, Christians would be blamed because they, they didn't worship the Roman gods. They didn't worship the, the emperor, and so they would be blamed for everything. It was a very, very difficult thing to be a Christian under Roman rule. In fact, think of it this way, right here at Lakeville, listen. They are followers, these Christians, of a man Rome killed. If he suffered, that is Jesus, how much more should his followers suffer? And suffer they did. Look at what the writer will say in Hebrews 10 verse 32. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with what? Sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. You hadn't resisted to the point of bloodshed, the author will say, but my friends, you know what it's like to suffer. Anybody relate? When life is hard and the suffering is intense, and you get to that point in life, and you get to that point in your faith where you start asking, how much more of this can I take? 
I don't want to belittle this at all, but, but to give you some type of a visual for you visual learners, it's like though if you've ever seen people that will take like a watermelon and start putting rubber bands on it and there's pressure that builds and builds and builds until finally it just explodes. Some of you are like, I'm trying that tomorrow. I'm totally doing that. But I want you to get that imagery because, and I'm not, again, I'm not trying to belittle, but some of you, you've been there in life. You've been there in your walk of faith. Amen. I just don't know how much I can take of this. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to stand for Jesus at school. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to try to remain faithful at my work. I just don't know how much more of this I can take. Well, cheer up, they know exactly how that feels. And then a thought enters their mind. Some of you may remember this from our Revelation series. They remember that, that Rome, according to their law, had given an exemption to Judaism. Jews didn't have to worship Roman gods. They didn't have to worship the emperor, which meant they didn't face persecution. So these Jewish Christians say, I've got a really good idea. Why don't we do what our forefathers talked about doing back in the wilderness? Why don't we just go back? What if we go back to Judaism? What if we go back to Jerusalem and back to the law, back to the Mosaic Covenant, uh, back to the sacrifices, back to the priesthood? What if we just go back to all that that's familiar, all that that's comfortable? Then life would be a little easier. And the writer will take 13 chapters of a sermon. You thought my sermons were long, right? Nowhere close. Thirteen chapters that this writer will spend to say this. You must be outside your mind to even think. Do you have any idea what you have? Do you have any idea the access you've been given? Do you understand who Jesus is? Because if you did, you wouldn't go back. And that's exactly how he starts this sermon. Look at verse 1. I know some of you are thinking, he's just now getting to verse 1. It's all right. Hang on. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. What a start. Here's what he says. Here's what you know. You know that God spoke partially in the past. God spoke partially in the past. He's saying that in the past, God spoke to our fathers, and he did so in a lot of different ways at a lot of different times. Adam in the garden, Moses in the bush, Jacob in the dream, Elijah in a still small voice, Jonah in a storm, Israel through the prophets. For Pete's sake, he even spoke to Balaam through a donkey. Our God is the God who speaks. He's not been silent. He has revealed himself in a lot of ways. Now, before I give you that, the main point of what the author is saying here, let me give you two side implications because I think these are important for us to not just skip past. Here's the first one. There is compassion in Revelation. Let me tell you what I mean. It's like this. Do you realize how gracious God was to reveal himself in the first place? 
Faith family, listen to me. I want you to get this. Have you ever been around somebody that doesn't communicate very much? Don't point. You know what I'm talking about? Hey, how was your day? Good. Hey, how's it going? Fine. Or, or sometimes it's just like sounds. Hey, how you doing? Ugh. It's like, that's it? Like, that's all you have to say? And we all know it's very difficult to have a dialogue. It's very difficult to have a relationship when there's not a lot of communication taking place. We know this. God spoke. God revealed himself. He didn't have to do it. He wasn't obligated whatsoever to reveal himself, but God so loved you, he spoke. I'm not making a dent, am I? Well, then let me ask Carl F.H. Henry to address this. He'll say it a lot better than I can say it. Oh, this is so good. Lakeville, everybody, listen. God chose to forfeit his own personal privacy. That's good. God chose to forfeit his own personal privacy. He could have kept himself to himself, but he spoke. And why did he do that? So that you could know him. Do you know how gracious that is? Notice it on the screen. I want you this morning, faith family, to realize that God's grace is not only experienced in his salvation, but also in his revelation. Do you know where you'd be right now if God had remained silent? Amen? Y'all eat too much fair food? What's going on, right? <laughs> the compassion of revelation. But here's a second implication quickly is the comfort that is this revelation. I'm not going to say much here other than to say given the context of the book, the writer starts here almost as a way of saying, you know what, even in your suffering, even in your hardship, I want you to know that God is not silent. And I just want you to know, can a pastoral moment right here, I'm talking to you, Lakeville, to, to all of you here, listen, some of you are suffering right now, some of you are going through difficulty, and it seems like God is silent, and I just want you to rest this morning in this beautiful truth God spoke. He has a word for you, He has a promise for you, even in your hardship, your God is the God who has revealed Himself. Take comfort in that. But here's the thing, that's not even the main point. That was free, and it doesn't count against my time. Uh, <laughs> here's the main point. The main point is this. The phrase, in various ways and at various times, is actually the idea of in pieces. So I would say it this way and be faithful to the text when I say, God revealed himself in pieces. Or God revealed himself a little bit at a time. Why? If you want the technical word so that you sound smart at parties, write down progressive revelation. That's the technical word. God revealed himself a little bit over time in various ways, in various places, to various people. Why? Why did he do it that way? How many of you have ever eaten too much too fast? I got hands going up like, I just want to testify this morning, Pastor, all right? Okay, can I give a confession? It was last night. Um, what happens when you do that? Your stomach starts to hurt. It gets full. And you, you, got, you got that like 
I'm going to bust feeling. Why? Because everybody knows that your stomach can only handle so much at a time. We know this. Some of you push that limit, right? But you know, it can only handle so much at a time or it's going to, it's going to hurt. What about this? Uh, how many of you have ever been in the dark and then all of a sudden somebody turned on all the lights? What was your response? You, 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 would, you were taken back. Why? Why was that your reaction? Because your eyes can only handle so much light at a time. What's the point? God revealed himself in pieces because he is so infinitely glorious, there is no way human beings could grasp the greatness of his glory in a single dose. And so he had to do it in pieces. He had to do it at various times and in various ways. And so he'd give a kingship and he'd give a temple and he'd give animal sacrifices and he'd give a law and he would set up a holy of holies and he would do all these little things, all of these little pieces throughout the Old Testament that revealed himself in some way. You with me? And that's the way it was. And you of all people know this, Jewish Christians. It's the way it was. Until. Verse 2. But in these last days, that is, in this final act of revelation, He has spoken, He has revealed Himself to us by His Son. In other words, here's what you know. You know that in the past God revealed himself partially, but you know that now God has spoken finally in a person. He has given a final word, a final revelation in his son. Notice it this way on the screen. God, listen, Jesus is not the first word that God has spoken. God has spoken in various times in various ways, but he is the final word. He is the final word that God has spoken. Don't you see all the pieces? We're preparing you for the person. All the, all the words. We're preparing you for Christmas. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. All of it was building towards that. Well, guess what? The that has happened. He walked out of the grave, ascended on high, and is seated at the right hand of God. Which would raise this question. Am I getting excited? I feel like I'm getting really excited. And it's probably because I'm really excited. It would raise this question. If you've been given the final and full word of God, why would you go back to the partial? When the substance is here, you don't go back to the shadow. Don't you? The shadow exists to point to the substance. The pieces were all to get you ready for the person. It's as though to say, if the entire point 
of having training wheels is to prepare you to ride the bike. And now, guess what? You can ride the bike. Why would you go back to training wheels? Training wheels were a temporary thing to prepare you to ride. The only reason, listen, Lakeville, everybody, the only reason you would want to go back to training wheels is this. You're still a child. Ouch. That's exactly what he'll say in chapter 5. The only reason you would want to go back to training wheels is you're still a child. So here's an idea. Here's an, not just an idea. Here's what I'm going to challenge you with, with every breath I got. Leave the training wheels behind and drive forward in faith. And that's not meant in again a way, like maybe some of you are here and you're a brand new Christian. This isn't like, what's wrong with you? It's like, go, 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 press on. Don't ever settle for mediocrity. Because mediocrity is really a cover-up for reverse. Press on in faith. Now, you say, okay, I got it. Don't go back. I think he said that about 50 times this morning. Don't go back. So how do I not go back? Where do we start? And I don't normally take notes, Pastor, but this sounds pretty important, so I'm ready. Give me three tips of not going back. Ready, go. I'm ready. Five practical ways to go forward in your faith. That's what the sermon ought to be, right? We're ready. It's interesting. That's not what the author gives us, is it? I think this is profound. In terms of the text, the author doesn't start with the insufficiency of the old. He just points you to the sufficiency of Jesus. In other words, here, here's the simple answer. Lakeville, everybody right here. Do you want to know the first step of moving forward and not going back? It's this. Get a fresh vision of who Jesus is. Because when you see who he is, there ain't no going back. Look at the second part of verse 2. He appointed the heir of all things, that is this son, through whom he also created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Right here, faith family, do you know who Jesus is? If you're a Christian, do you know who you have? Do you know Jesus? He is the Son of God. That is, He is the heir of all things. As Son, everything is given to Him. Everything exists for Him. Everything belongs to Him. Do you know who He is? He is the source of creation. As Paul will say, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is the very creator of life. Do you know who he is? He is the signature of God that is the exact imprint of his nature, the very seal and signature of the Father. It is why Jesus will say, if you have seen me, 
You've seen the Father. For in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is the very imprint, the very nature of God the Father. He is the sustainer of life. He upholds the universe by His power. In Him we live and move and have our being. Do you remember that song you sang as a kid? He's got the whole world in His hands. Do you know who He is? He's not just the sustainer of life. He's the final sacrifice for sins. He offered up his perfect life for our imperfect life. And after he offered himself on the cross and three days later walked out of the grave, he ascended on high and he sat down, the text says, as if to say, everything that I said on the cross, like it is finished, is It's done. You don't have to do because I already did. You don't have to try to make yourself acceptable for God. You have to accept the very righteousness of Christ. You don't have, oh, glory, I'm getting excited. You don't have to offer your own sacrifices. He already offered himself as a sacrifice and, the writer says, the final purification for sins. Because of Jesus, it really is finished. Amen. I agree. I agree. Amen. That was was probably worth that kind of amen. Yeah. Hallelujah. Right? Are you kidding me? Your sin is forgiven finally forever, period. Yes. It's all right. We got work to do. We got work to do. We'll get there. We'll get there, all right? I mean, look at what he's done. Look at who he is. He's everything your soul needs. He's everything your soul needs. And then lastly, he's superior to angels. He has the name above even the angelic beings because it's his name that every tongue is going to confess as Lord, that every knee is going to bow down to. Oh, faith family, do you know who he is? Do you know who he is? Do you know who you're dealing with? Do you know who you're worshiping? And the writer says all of this for this kind of an introduction. Listen. So why would you go back to a prophet when you have the son? Why would you go back to that which was created when you have the creator? Why would you go to the artificial when you got the real thing? Why would you go back to what's dead when you got the giver of life? Why would you go back to what can't take away sins when you've got the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? For heaven's sake, why would you go back to angels? Don't you realize the angels sit around every day chanting and declaring and singing over and over and over again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. How can you possibly go back? And that, my friends, is just the introduction. What an amazing introduction. Amen? That ought to give you just a taste this morning of what the next several weeks is going to be about. And I hope that excites you. And I'm going to kind of close this morning 
in the last hour of this sermon <laughs> to give you four responses from this passage, and it's also four responses that we will find throughout the rest of the book, okay? So, so how are we to respond to this truth? First of all is worship. Worship. This passage for sure, and the rest of the book of Hebrews, is going to just exalt Jesus over and over again. Oh, you like that? Jesus is better. Oh, you like that? Jesus is better. Oh, you want to run back to that? Jesus is better. And, and so my, my, my prayer, my prayer, my prayer is that our affections for Jesus are stirred. Some of you, some of you are going to worship more deeply by the time we get finished with this book. That's a really good reason to be here, amen? It's going to deepen your worship. Here's the second thing that I trust this passage and the book will do for us, and that is uh, give us a deeper sense of gratitude, a deeper sense of gratitude. Um, the author of Hebrews is going to do this a lot. He's going to make the point of, do you have any idea how good you have it? In other words, do you realize the time in which you live? Because this final word of the Son has come, do you realize how much more you have than all of those in the Old Testament? And as I thought about that, I, I got to thinking about this. I wonder how Moses would respond if he heard what most Christians complain about in churches today. I already got to preach. Amen? That's right. <laughs> I wonder what Moses would say if he heard people complain about construction or finding a parking spot or the fact that they changed our service times and now we have to get up 15 minutes earlier, hypothetically speaking. <laughs> and so I got to thinking, what would Moses say to a Christian complaining about those things. I think he'd say something like, yeah, and then what happens? You get to be at a church that meets, period, regardless of what time it meets or how early. And it meets several different times in several different locations. And what do you get to experience? And what do you get to hear when you meet at said church? Oh, only the gospel of Jesus Christ sang about and proclaimed. I would give two stone tablets and a burning bush for that privilege. Yeah, but I got to get up 15 minutes earlier. Really? I thought the Hebrews in the wilderness were complainers. Now, I am sarcastically, it's my spiritual gift, I am sarcastically pastoring you in this moment. Don't forget the privilege you have. Please don't let parking overshadow the privilege of gathering to worship Jesus. Moses would give a parted sea for an empty tomb any day of the week. And so may gratitude explode in us as we see what we have now in Christ. The book of Hebrews will do that. Thirdly, is the book of Hebrews is going to encourage you. 
man, brother, sister, if you're here and you're struggling and life is hard and it's difficult and you're like that watermelon I showed you a little bit ago, you're just about ready to explode. One more rubber band of suffering gets placed on you and you're done. Come back. Because I believe God through this book is going to encourage your heart. And that he's going to say to you, sister, you ain't giving up. Your story's not finished. You're not going to explode. I'm going to keep you to the end. It's going to encourage your heart. And then lastly, would just be the word relationship. <laughs> and, and many of you have heard me preach, so you know how big of a deal this is. The book of Hebrews is going to destroy religious traditions. It's going to be very, very hard to be a Catholic or a traditional Baptist. Ha, ha, ha. You thought I was going to leave you out, right? Whatever spectrum you're on, the book of Hebrews will not let you hold on to your tradition. It will say, run to Christ. Learn what an actual relationship with Jesus is because you've been, been given access to God through him. That may be the most beautiful transformation that takes place in our hearts. Amen? Because all these ritualistic things that they were tempted to run back to, we're tempted to run back to instead of running to Jesus. I'll close with this sincerely. Back in, it was uh, late 1800s, there was a, um, just an amazing revival gospel movement that took place in northern India. Places, places that were closed to the gospel became open to the gospel, and there was really an amazing work um, of Christianity that took place there. It wasn't without its cost. A lot of the early converts of that movement uh, were killed for their faith. There's a story uh, about a Welsh missionary that moved to northern India, one of the most difficult villages to evangelize, and uh, through his ministry led a, a man and his wife and their two kids to faith in Jesus. And when the village leaders heard about this, they decided, mm -mm, not here, we will make an example out of this man. We will make an example out of this family. And they drugged them into the village, and everybody was gathered around, and they took the man, and they basically said, if you do not renounce Christ, we are going to kill your family. And they grabbed his children. And they looked at that husband and they said, if you do not renounce Christ, if you do not turn from Christ, we will kill your children. And here's what the man said, and I quote, I have decided to follow Jesus. There is no turning back. And they killed his children. And then they grabbed his wife. If you do not renounce Christ, if you do not turn back from your faith in Jesus, we will kill your wife. And the man said, and I quote, the world is behind me. It's the cross that's before me. There is no turning back. And they killed his wife. And then they grabbed him. And they said, this is your last chance. 
If you do not renounce Christ, if you do not turn back on your faith, we will kill you. And the man said, and I quote, if no one goes with me, I will still follow. There is no turning back. And they killed him. But do you know what, faith family? It was the testimony of that man and his death that would lead those village leaders that killed him and his family to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And the gospel continued to spread. Now my guess is some of you are thinking those words sound familiar. And for many of you they should. You see, it was that dying man's testimony that became the basis of the hymn we know as, I have decided to follow Jesus. It is not a song that is meant to be sentimental. It is, listen, it is a song about a man who had destroyed the ships and taken up a cross. A man who knew that because of who Jesus is, there is no turning back. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you pray with me? God, that is my prayer for us as we start this series. That you would strengthen our resolve, that you would deepen our commitment, that you would give us the grace we need to stand firm because it's clear we don't have the strength to do it on our own. So God, would you, by your grace, fill us that we might press forward in faith and not retreat that we would burn the ships, whatever those things are in our life that keep drawing us back, that we would move forward. And if there's somebody here that does not know you, they've, they've never put their faith, oh, that this would be the day that they would take that first step of faith in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, speak to us, draw us, Uh, Whatever it is that you would have to say to us, make it clear on our hearts this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.